Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We're speaking with uh, uh, Lieutenant uh, Jason Redman, United States Navy SEAL. Retired, right? You're you're. Retired at this point? Yes, Mike. Uh, yep, retired after 21 years. 21 years that whole time with the Navy, correct? That's correct. Now, you uh, you come from a military family. Um, going back to your grandfather, uh, flew a B-24 in World War II. He actually had an amazing story. He was shot down over Europe uh, and was decorated for leading his crew back to safety. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, pretty amazing story. Uh, flying over the European front and uh, shot down over Yugoslavia. And it was in the winter, and basically, uh, you know, I don't know why they didn't bail out, but uh, basically took the plane in and landed on a snow-covered field and crash-landed this plane, and everybody was okay. And then they, uh, he basically led them. They evaded back to friendly lines. So through that, he was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross, and he flew all 25 missions and uh, earned, I think, seven air medals during the war. So, yeah, pretty distinguished record himself. And then your your father, he was, in, he was uh, airborne, right? That's right. Yep. He was paratrooper uh, during Vietnam. He didn't go over to Vietnam, but uh, he was training guys. He was a rigger and, uh, and did his time, which was actually one of the things that really – attracted me to the special operations side of the house. I was definitely very fascinated with jumping out of planes like my dad had done. And he he actually had met some SEALs in jump school and that's how I first found out about the Navy SEALs. Yeah, you were very you, you were very focused on becoming a SEAL. That's like that was what you wanted, right? Yeah, from a young age. Probably my dad told me about the SEAL teams when I was about 14. I'd always wanted to go in the military when I first learned about them. And I don't know what it is. I'm not the, um, you know, typical, um, I don't know, demographic, I guess, that people would make in their minds or when they think about what is a SEAL, you know, especially back then, you know, I was a small kid. And, uh, you know, it wasn't like this rock star, you know, star athlete or anything back then. Uh, I just was a kid who loved the military, and I was just fascinated with this idea of the SEALs. And for some reason, you know, being told it was the toughest training in the military, it just lit my fuse, and I was like, that's what I want to do. So I uh, started to go down that path and just working out and pushing myself in different areas and uh, ultimately – made my way to Bud's um, at 18 years old and graduated when I was 19. You also went through ranger school? Is that correct? That's right. Oh, my. So, so did um, you do that after becoming a SEAL? I did. So uh, a lot of people don't know ranger school is a, is a combat leadership school. So uh, all branches who uh, serve in uh, frontline combat units can actually send individuals to ranger school. So... Over the years, the SEAL teams have uh, sent usually junior officers to Ranger School. I know the Air Force sends some of their special operations guys. The Marines do. And uh, 
I uh, found myself in Ranger School about halfway through my career. I was a newer junior officer, and I actually kind of made a couple of uh, arrogant mistakes. And my leadership thankfully said, hey, we believe in you, but we need to humble you. So uh, we're going to send you to Ranger School to <laughs> learn a few things about yourself. Um, dare I ask, which was was Ranger School... Could I say it was uh, a walk in? Uh, yeah, could I say it was a walk in the park compared to SEAL training, or were there parts uh, of it, it that it were it tougher? It wasn't. Uh, you know, big shout out to all my Ranger brethren that are out there. Um, you know, that have gone through Ranger School. Ranger School was hard, and I will tell you, when I showed up, I thought, "Oh man, this is going to be a walk in the park. I've made it through SEAL training. You know, yeah. this is going to be easy." And it's not. It is a very tough school. Um, different SEAL training is definitely harder, but, uh, Ranger school is not easy by any stretch of the imagination. And, uh, I definitely had to pour myself into it. And, uh, you know, many times it was a gut check to grind through and make it, make it through training. Uh, so let's talk about your, uh, your service a little bit, if we could, um, you started uh, uh, doing operations uh, in uh, this hemisphere in South America. You, you were kind of you were doing operations with the war on drugs. Is that correct? That's right. So pre nine eleven, I was uh, serving throughout Central and South America, specifically focused on uh, working with our South American counterparts, and then also focused on the counter drug mission that was pretty heavy back in the uh, you know early to mid nineties. And then uh, after 9-11, which, I mean, I can imagine it really changed a great deal. The world changed, but especially for the United States military. Uh, I'm sure that was a, a huge change uh, in, in all oh, aspects. Yeah. Absolutely. Everything changed overnight. I mean, you have to, you know, individuals in the military, um, you know, we often talk about the, the, the military goes through seasons. We have peacetime seasons where... Uh, the military is in a very different position. I mean, it's much more focused, obviously, on training. And, you know, certain things tend to go to the wayside just because you don't have combat to keep that front side focused. Even with even as much as the military is focused on combat, uh, only the actual experience of combat causes you to realize that maybe some of the things we were doing in training don't actually work on the battlefield. And that's exactly what happened post 9-11. So the world that I had grown up in, I came in when I was in, uh, when I was, uh, I came in in 92 and then of course 9-11 happened. So everything that I had learned, everything within the SEAL teams, um, really the last time we had seen sustained combat was Vietnam. So we were still using a lot of the tactics and a lot of the lessons learned that our Vietnam veterans had brought back from Vietnam. Obviously the dense jungles and swamps of Vietnam, um, were were a very tough environment to fight in and some tactical aspects still applied but when you took that to heavy urban city fighting desert fighting you know very rugged mountainous terrain mm. um you know between iraq and afghanistan everything changed overnight uh we also were doing a lot of maritime or i'm sorry we also were doing a lot of mobility operations so uh ground boys ground base ground convoys so uh, really, um, it was incredible. Within a two, three-year period, virtually all our tactics changed overnight. And the and the so, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, the the emphasis also on special forces became much greater. It seemed uh, that it did. Yeah. I mean, the enemy we were fighting was not a conventional force. Uh, very unconventional in nature. Uh, very ambiguous. Um, they they. Um, 
oftentimes were very smart. They used our rules of engagement against us, so they wouldn't, you know, they never walked around in uniforms. They never walked around openly carrying weapons. Instead, they would frequently hide weapons in places. They would um, watch us and even walk alongside American or coalition forces and, you know, watch what you were doing. And then they would duck into a, you know, house where they had stored weapons and engage you and then ditch those weapons and run away. Um, knowing that our rules of engagement were, hey, you can, you know, you can only engage individuals with weapons and things like that. So they were very small. Um, thankfully, at certain points of the war, you know, we got shabby and uh, we adapted our rules of engagement to take out individuals like that. But um, oftentimes, special operations forces became the force of choice just because we were able to operate incredibly light. We were very surgical. We had the ability to go in and take out um, high-level and mid-level leaders um, without creating without creating massive amounts of impact on the civilian populace. And that's that was really important for the I guess the the battle for hearts and minds also was to, to minimize uh, 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 collateral damage, I guess you could say, to, to civilian deaths. So it, it is, and I mean, there's a lot of truth to that. Um, you know, if you, if you don't uh, win over the people, then, you know, potentially you're just creating a future generation of people that uh, despise the nation that's there that's trying to help them. So, you know, it's definitely warfare is a tough thing. Uh, nation building is a very complicated thing. I don't think we should be involved in it personally. I think that, you know, our job is to go in and take out the enemy and then figure out the diplomatic means to help the countries rebuild themselves. And uh, unfortunately, I think sometimes we get a little too entrenched in that. Now, you, you served in both Afghanistan and uh, Iraq. And uh, if we could... Uh, talk about the uh, the incident where you were severely wounded uh, when you were operating in Iraq. Yeah, we were close to the end of the deployment. It had been a very, very successful deployment, uh, a very eventful deployment. We had operated almost every night. I think uh, close to the end of that deployment, uh, our, true, our task unit uh, had conducted over 80 uh, direct action capture-kill missions. Um, and really had taken down a significant number of senior al-Qaeda and insurgent leaders. And uh, we were literally just uh, one week from going home. Our first wave of guys were going home, but we got word that the senior al-Qaeda leader for the Al-Ambar province was going to be a specific time and location. We launched on that mission, and uh, unfortunately, we basically walked into a very well-executed ambush. Uh, the security detail for that enemy leader was set up across from the house we were getting ready to go into. And as we were crossing some dense vegetation, uh, they opened up on us, uh, multiple machine guns, multiple AK-47 shooters, and myself and other members of my team were caught in this very, very effective crossfire. Um, I was hit. Uh, I was hit at least eight times that we know of between my body armor and body. Um, I took two rounds in the left elbow that pretty almost took my arm off. I took rounds across body armor. I took rounds off my helmet, left night vision 
tube shot off, went rounds off my weapon, took rounds off my helmet, um, and then I took a round directly in the face, uh, which did a, a lot of damage. It, I'd actually turned trying to move back to the only point of cover we had, which was kind of a large John Deere-style tractor tire back behind us. And I went to move to that, and I got caught from behind. The bullet actually hit me right in front of my right ear, uh, traveled through my face, exited the right side of my nose, which took off most of my nose. It blew out uh, most of my right cheekbone, which was le- what was left of the cheekbone, broke and kicked out to the right. Um, a very, you know, the bullet was a PKM machine gun bullet, which is about the size of your thumb, and it traveled right under my eye. It uh, obliterated my orbital floor. My eye dropped into this newfound hole. Um, eye muscles were damaged. It broke all the bones above my eye. Uh, it broke the head of my jaw. It shattered my jaw down to my chin, and it knocked me out. So my guy saw me get hit and fall and originally thought I was dead, um, you know, continuing to fight this pre-fierce firefight. Um, uh, we don't know how long. I mean, the firefight lasted about 40 minutes, so I don't know how long I was unconscious, five, ten minutes. When I came to, uh, there was a slight lull in fire. I called out to my team leader and, you know, I asked him when the medevac was coming because I knew I didn't have a lot of time. Uh, I was losing a lot of blood and I was in pretty bad shape. And uh, he upped the ante on the enemy. Uh, We basically ended up calling in a fire mission directly on our position, uh, which uh, to this day was the closest fire mission ever executed in the entire Iraq war. Really? And thankfully... Wow. Yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, thankfully, somehow we survived. I mean, the, the I watched the heat. You know, I remember him saying incoming, and you can actually hear the sound of the guns on the aircraft go off. And there's a little bit of delay before the rounds impact the ground. And I remember hearing that sound and then, and then you know, feeling the explosion and the dirt and debris go up over us. So, thankfully, somehow we were not fragged. Uh, none of us were injured or killed from those fire missions, but we were able to we were able to take out the enemy, and then my teammates were able to fight back. Uh, my team leader ran forward, got me, got a tourniquet on my arm, did did a great job of uh, really saving my life, and then uh, they got me on a medevac bird and got me out of there, which started a, a whole new journey of being put back together and understanding what it is to uh, lead and overcome in uh, in adverse situations. And you had 37 surgeries. Did I get that number correct? That's right. It, it ended up being 40, uh, you know, now that everything's <laughs> said and done. So, um, you know, 40 surgeries total uh, over about a four-year period. So it sounds like a lot. And, yes. Uh, it is. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, a lot of wounded warriors out there have had a significant more than I have. A lot of our guys and gals, you know, one of the downsides of war wounds is they're incredibly dirty. So, you know, bullets are dirty, bombs are dirty, and obviously the soil we fight in is dirty. Um, So frequently when um, individuals, warriors get wounded on the battlefield, they bring home infection. And the initial wounds are bad enough, but it's usually the infection that does the most damage. Uh, That's why a lot of times individuals will come home with their limbs and they'll end up being amputated. Uh, I was no different. I had a significant amount of infection problems. Uh, they tried to rebuild my face, and the first several attempts failed. 
Um, so uh, they, I was on very heavy on antibiotics and all kinds of things trying to kill these infections. So it's just the plight of, uh, unfortunately, of wounded warriors. Oftentimes it's uh, one step forward and two steps back, which is often why many of us end up having so many surgeries is just because, you know, it's not these nice, clean wounds that they can right. just, you know, drive forward. Uh, the the story of the sign also is pretty amazing. You put a sign on your door. Um, it, it said, attention to all who enter here. If you are coming into this room with sorrow or to feel sorry for my wounds, go elsewhere. And the wounds I received I got in a job I love, doing it for people I love, supporting the freedom of a country I deeply love. I am incredibly tough and will make a full recovery. What is full? That is the absolute utmost physically my body has the ability to recover and then i will push that about 20 percent further through sheer mental tenacity and this room you're about to enter is a room of fun optimism and intense rapid growth and if you're not prepared for that go elsewhere was there that that sign went viral it, it has inspired i i think not only uh, uh, veterans or, or military people. I think it's just in, it inspired people in general who are recovering from really a, a many different things. What what was the one? Was there one incident that inspired you to make that sign? Uh, yeah, it actually was one incident, and it was a little bit. It's something that I speak on all the time. So I speak all across the country now to companies, individuals, teams, organizations. And, um, you know, it's interesting. Everybody in life is going to encounter hard times. You're going to encounter trauma. You're going to encounter bad situations. You know, you're going to lose your job. You're going to have relationships fold. You're going to get sick. You're going to have people around you that get sick. I mean, it's just an unfortunate part of being human that we are going to encounter massive amounts of adversity, pain, and struggle. Um, But the good news is uh, those things can actually make you better if you're willing to endure and go through them and look for the positivity and look for a way out of them instead of dwelling in the sorrow and the misery of the moment, which is what most people do. And I'll admit, in the very beginning of my injuries, I was no different than anyone else. I was really struggling with what happened. I was kind of focused on the pain. I was focused on, you know, doctors telling me, hey, we're going to amputate your arm. We're going to, you know, we have no idea what the outcome is going to be, but we do know it's going to be an incredibly long road for you. You'll probably never operate again as a SEAL and all these different things. And um, that was tough. Uh, that was, uh, it was a tough pill to swallow as I lay in the hospital bed. So I was really trying to motivate myself and figure things out. And I had some individuals come into my room and, you know, a little polite conversation. And then I started to drift off. Uh, but I was in that subconscious state where you can still hear sounds around you. You can hear conversations, but you're not, you know, you're just kind of in that in between awake and asleep state. Yeah. And they started to have a conversation with themselves off the side of my bed. And it was about what a shame, what a pity. We send these young men and women off to war. They come back broken and battered. You know, they're never going to be the same. They're never going to be able to integrate back into society again. You know, what a waste, what a pity. And, uh, and then they left. And I lay there, and this was really percolating inside my brain. And, um, and, I, and you know, I was like, man, is, is this me? Is this it? Is this, am I just a broken man? Am I just a disabled man that will never be able to do anything else with my life? And, um, and really, it was kind of a spark that I was like, no, that's not me. I refuse to do that. I refuse to, you know, I talk a lot about, you know, the point of incident, the point of attack, and, 
in combat is called the X. So in order to survive, you have to get off the X. Um, well, I realize life is no different. And I refuse to sit on that X, that pity X, that, oh, woe is me X, you know, this, this just wallow in the misery and, you know, everything that I've lost X. I said, I've got to get off the X. I've got to look at how to move forward. And that's one of the amazing things about life. You have a choice. You have a choice. You can choose to lay there and lay down and feel sorry for yourself and not do anything and not move forward. Or you can choose to look, you know, to, to brace and drive through the storm. And somewhere out there on the other side, there is hope. There is sunshine. There is a future. And in that moment in my hospital room, that's what I chose. And I told me, when my wife came back into the room, I said, never again. Never again is somebody going to come into this room feeling sorry for me. I refuse to feel sorry for myself. And, th- and that's how I wrote out that sign. And I'll be honest, there wasn't a whole lot of thought that went into it. I just, it was a little bit of a stream of consciousness right in that moment. There was never a rewrite. Um, how it is is exactly how I wrote it in, you know, those... I don't know, 10, 15 minutes after those people left. Uh, it's it's very inspirational. Uh, it went viral. I'm sure it's helped so many people. Um, and it's it's such an important message for other veterans. Uh, you know, I've, I've spoken to a lot of uh, veterans this past couple weeks as we get ready for this event, and one of the things that I find that's a common thread is that um, they're able to talk about it with other veterans and realize that they're not alone and trying to, uh, and struggling with whatever the wounds they have or PTSD. And I think that's, that's one of the most important things I've heard. Is that something you, you also find that when other veterans are just telling other veterans, you're not alone in this, we may have not gone, gone through the same experience, but you know, I know what you're feeling and we can overcome this. Yeah, 100%. And uh, veterans, absolutely. We understand each other. We speak the same language. I mean, for many of us, we've, we've seen similar situations on the battlefield. And, and, and not to downplay or knock any civilians that are out there, but, you know, it's, it's tough. You cannot empathize without having been there and seeing the things that happen on the battlefield and the scars, you know, the mental and emotional scars that come from war. And I tell fellow veterans that, you know, it is just like combat. You know, it is that idea that I talk about. You have to get off the X. You cannot sit there and dwell on what happened. You can't go back and change the past. You can't change the things we've seen. And you may never fully recover from those scars. You know, you'll always carry them with you, the mental, the physical, and the emotional scars. But you can drive forward past them. And I also tell them something else, that, you know, the civilians, sometimes veterans really push civilians away. And they say, well, they don't understand me. They don't understand war, but they do understand trauma because everybody in life has experienced trauma. Everybody has experienced pain. Everybody has experienced loss. There are a lot of people out there that have seen some really horrific things, people that have been mentally, physically, emotionally, verbally abused um, that carry uh, as deep post-traumatic stress as individuals that have been on the battlefield. So, you know, we're, I try and explain to my fellow veterans out there that, you know, you are not an island. You are not all alone. Uh, there are a ton of people out there that have, that have struggled and have been through pain. And, uh, and by leaning on them and by telling your story, there's power in your story. And if, 
if you don't tell your story, it will stay inside you and it will eat you. But the great thing is, once you learn to harness the power of it, you can help others. And now you own it and it doesn't own you. Well, that's that's one of the great thing about we're, we're trying to raise money for Clear Path for Veterans. And they have so many different programs, but a lot of them involve getting veterans together, uh, getting them out, not just to in a room to speak to each other, but getting them out to do, like for playing golf together. Uh, they help organize, you know, the honor flights uh, for other veterans. And I know you are a big supporter of, you know, we need funding to help our veterans. These are good things. But the like, say you were saying, you know, they push civilians away. What can a civilian do? What's the best thing a civilian can do to help veterans? Yeah, definitely. I mean, find a program. There's a lot of good programs. I encourage you to, you know, for those who are listening, I mean, Clear Path for Veterans uh, up in the, uh, you know, northeastern area is doing great stuff. And uh, but research your groups. I mean, find a group that there's something about them that motivates and inspires you. So perhaps, you know, you're a civilian that is a big outdoorsman. Uh, Well, there are groups out there that are taking our wounded warriors on hunting trips and uh, getting them outdoors again and understanding that there's power in people to being together in situations like this. You know, we have a tendency to not focus on um, our struggles and our trauma in those moments, and it's actually a natural time that we start to tell our stories when, you know, we let our guard down and we're having fun. So find organizations like that. Bet them. You know, there's great um, nonprofit uh Watchdogs out there, GuideStar, Charity Navigator are both great ones. So if you have a nonprofit, a veteran nonprofit that you think is doing good work, just go check them out. Make sure that they post all their financials. Make sure the money goes where the mission is because at the end of the day, they need money. Uh, Organizations to be able to execute these programs need money. I mean, well wishes and volunteers do a lot of amazing work, but at the end of the day, it costs dollars to put veterans through these programs, whether it's getting them out into outdoor activities, whether it's providing them mental health support, whether it's helping them find jobs, whether it's retraining them to find their new purpose. All these things take dollars, and uh, that's one of the biggest ways. If you truly want to help, that's one of the biggest ways you can help. And you've also done a lot of work uh, in CTE research, uh, specifically, I think you call it blast related CTE research, yeah. concussions from uh, from combat, right? That's right. So we are seeing, obviously, I think, you know, it's not a um, it's not a secret. We're losing a ton of veterans a day to suicide. Uh, yeah. The numbers vary between 22 and 20 a day. Um, although there is a little bit of a misnomer, there's a lot of people that think all those veterans are from 9-11 forward, and that's not true. It's actually probably half and half between our post-9-11 veterans and our current. Either way, uh, it is still a travesty. Uh, we should not be losing uh, this many veterans to suicide. We definitely, you know, you served your country, you basically sacrificed your your mind and your your body, your mind and your freedom for a number of years uh, to enable everybody else to achieve the American dream. So why are we losing so many guys? On the post 9-11 front, we do know a fact that uh, we, this modern warfare we are fighting and even the way we train, we're exposing guys uh, and gals out there to a significant higher number of blasts than they've ever seen in the past. And we are starting to see individuals who are taking their lives when they are autopsied. They are having significant um, uh, degeneration in the brain. 
which they are linking back to something very similar to what NFL players are seeing called CTE, uh, concussive traumatic encephalitis. Uh, ours, though, is very different because it's blast-related. It the, the, the blast wave goes all the way through the, va- the brain versus a concussion, which is, you know, uh, multiple localized events. Mm-hmm. So I'm on, a, I'm on a big push working with the Concussion Legacy Foundation. They have a program called Project Enlist, and we are trying to get uh, combat veterans to pledge their brains, to donate their brains, just like we donate our other organs, um, donate your brain. Because, you know, it'll be the last final act you can do to give back to fellow veterans. Because the problem is doctors don't understand um, what happens to the brain when a blast wave goes through it. And we know it is creating long-term damage. But we don't know how to diagnose it, and we sure don't know how to treat it. So until doctors can study these brains, um, like I pledged my brain, um, until then, and they get a full understanding of it, we're not going to be able to fully be able to diagnose and treat it. So this is a long-term problem. We're obviously looking 20, 30 years down the road. But just trying to tell all my veterans out there, hey, man, you know, if you want a final act to give back to your fellow veterans, you know, to be a team team player, a squad member, you know, go to Concussion Legacy Foundation, look up Project Enlist, and pledge your brain. Well, uh Jason Redmond, thank you very much for taking the time today, and uh, and thank you for your service. And really, thank you for, I'm sure you've told the story of your service and how you got wounded uh, many, many times, and thank you for, for um, retelling that story uh, for our listeners also. I, I appreciate that. I don't know if that gets harder or easier for you to, to relate, um, but thank No, it's, uh, it's easier. Um, and the more you tell it, the more you own it. And that's what I try to explain to guys. I think, you know, a lot of times people don't want to talk about their painful experiences and that's okay. It's human nature. But the flip side of that coin, it's like a cancer. If you don't address it, it's just going to, it's going to continue to grow and eat you. Well, I appreciate you doing that and taking the time. And, uh, I encourage also everybody to check out uh, your book, the Trident, the forging and the reforging of a Navy SEAL leader. Uh, so thank you very much for your time, sir. And Mike, my new book, Overcome, comes out December 10th. And that one is one that every wounded warrior out there should get because it is a step-by-step process to help guys and gals and anyone that's ever been through trauma on how to get off that X and drive forward to find success. Awesome. Thank you very much, Jason. Yep, Mike, thanks so much. Thanks for what you guys are doing. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.